WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to City Talk. And tonight we're going to explore the field of dentistry with a lady who I'm proud to say has been not only a good dentist, but a good friend for, oh gosh, I hate to say it, 25, 30 years. Anyway, she is Helene Smith, and she is with Pound Ridge Dentistry, and uh, we'll find out a little bit more about that as we go. But uh, doctor, it's nice to have you. And this is one time when I don't even have to say, ah, I can just listen to you speak. Thank you, Ken, for having me today. All right, let's talk about you. I, I, when I first started working with you, you were in Massachusetts. Is that where you, did you grow up in Massachusetts? No, I did not. I grew up in New York, but had a really lovely time after I went to Boston University Dental School. Uh, so I loved it there and I decided to stay and start a practice, which I did in West Roxbury, Massachusetts for many years. And it was, Boston has such great medicine and it is such a wonderful environment to be educated in and to be around such professionals that it was a very good first part of my career to be there for a few decades, it really was. Now, when you say you're from New York, you mean New York City or New York State or where exactly? That's right. New York is very big. And yeah. I grew up about uh, exactly uh, 20 miles, 15 miles from north of New York City in a small village called Bronxville, which is a mile square right on the Metro North train line. And what made you decide that you wanted to do dentistry? Did you have a deep cavity that somebody took care of? Or, or, or what was it that fascinated you about the dental work? Uh, basically, my parents were the ones who really pushed me to have a career, being I was an only child. And I had my first exposure to dentistry was when I was 15 years old my dentist used to have high school girls work for him in his office, which was right in the uh, Bronxville. And I worked for him. I got my working papers and I started earning money officially uh, the first summer after my first year of uh, high school. And at that point, I loved it but I didn't really see myself doing dentistry. And my parents are the ones who kept pushing me and pushing me. And then I worked for a dentist to earn some extra money while I was in college. And that uh, also in New York, and that I began to see a little bit more and began thinking about it. And my college had a joint program with Georgetown Dental School which I applied for and was accepted in. So it made my life very easy during college because I knew I would be going off to dental school. So I kept my parents happy. I kind of 
kept myself on a, a straight path. And then uh, there was a big turn in the road when in the late 80s, uh, a lot of dental schools were closing. And unfortunately, Georgetown was one of the ones that closed. And then I made myself uh, a long way around through Washington University in St. Louis, and then finally finished at Boston University. All that took how long? Dental school is four years, and it took four years. <laughs> well, that's good. At least we know you didn't flunk anything. That's right. <laughs> now, how difficult was it to set up a practice after you graduated? Oh, it was very difficult, Ken. Uh, back in the 90s, they did not have specific financing for dentists. So if you weren't fortunate enough to have a family who could help you, you had to go to the bank. And banks really did not understand the value of investing in dentists at this point. Since then, they have uh, total financial uh, centers within a bank specifically dedicated to lending to young professionals veterinarians and dentists and plastic surgeons who are setting up private practices. But at the time, there wasn't uh, any lending uh, for me, particularly since I had student loans from dental school, which were about 150000 which sounds like nothing now, but back in the 90s, that was a lot of money. And uh, my income was low, so I could not get a bank to lend any money to me. I was very fortunate where I had a friend, once I found a practice to buy, I had a friend who lent me some money for the down payment. And the wonderful dentist who sold it to me uh, took back the note and we did it on a handshake. And that is something that also will not happen in today's world. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. Um, but how difficult was it and how were you able to find patients? Was it strictly by word of mouth? Yes, at the time uh, I did do advertising in the yellow pages. And I remember I had what they used to call a double truck ad. So the ad would take up the right and left side of the yellow pages. And uh, when about in 2003, the, that's when everything started going on the internet. And I remember telling the salesman that I was not going to advertise anymore. And he became incredibly irate and uh, he said, well, I'll come back in a year and your business will have failed. And I, I was just like, wow, you know, because he was losing probably not only my account, but a lot of accounts at this point. So word of mouth, yes, it's always word of mouth but you need to do some form of uh, advertising also. 
Now, I know from talking to you that one of the things that you started to do was do dentistry work in foreign countries. Tell me what, when did that start and what lured you there? Well, that gets a little, a little deeper into some personal things, which is totally fine. But I um, was a little not completely loving dentistry when I first got out of uh, dental, my dental training. And I felt a little restless and I wanted to do more. And, and why is this? It, it was because I also was thinking about being a minister and uh, my parents did not want me to do that as a profession at all. So uh, it was kind of when my college had the specific program with Georgetown Dental and my parents twisting my arm that I said, okay, I'm just going to take this path. It's kind of easy. And it just lets uh, things just kind of flow. So I, um, right away, I began looking for places to see the world, explore, and really give back also uh, of my skills. And I went to Honduras uh, many times, about six times, and that was wonderful. Then I became involved with Operation Smile that does cleft lip and palate repair. And I was in the Philippines twice um, and so many countries, Australia in the outback, uh, Ghana. It, it was just all amazing, amazing experience over a decade with many mission trips. And, and how did you promote the fact that you were there and available for these, for these people that had, I'm sure, dental problems, but didn't have the finances to take care of them? Luckily, there was a lot of, uh, in, in the country, they would just, it was all word of mouth because the places were very remote, third world countries, and word would get around, I think, probably faster or as fast as things do today on the internet. And there would be people walking for days. They knew when we were coming and they would just uh, be there and wait on long lines to be seen. It must've been in a way discouraging to see that some of these people really didn't have dental care. It was very eye-opening. It was really good. Uh, for an American to go and see what people endure, to actually see operating rooms. The operating room in uh, Kenya had pigeons sitting in the windows, which were opened. So there were actual birds just sitting there, uh, just seeing they didn't supply food for the patients. Their, their families had to bring them food after the surgeries. It, it was really so different and eye-opening. And how many years did you do this? I think about 12 years. Wow. 12 years. 
And what, what made you stop? Basically, it, it really was, I began to see that there was a need in my practice. I also was not so much getting so busy where I couldn't take the time or didn't want to, but it's a lot of, it's a lot to pick up and go. And I felt that I did that. And I just naturally, as I, I, I kind of very slowly grew out of it. And I think as we go along in our decades, we have a natural beginning, middle and end of almost everything that we do. And it just naturally happened. And I really saw a need There was kind of a things financially and in, in Boston weren't going well for people. It was a dot com kind of bust and uh, people were really struggling. And I began seeing families who were losing one income provider. And I had other families then whose like maybe father passed away. And I just began then thinking, well, I can take some of that, not so like lost income that I would go away and just kind of just switch it and do a little bit for some families that were a part of my practice that were in need at for no reason except bad circumstances in their life. So I, I still always carried that real need to, to help people. I just made it a little different. Okay. And you were in West Roxbury for how long? Oh, wow. Since uh, 1994 until 2011. Wow. That's a long time. All right. And then you relocated. Um, tell us, and you do have a website. Um, tell us about the website and about Pound Ridge Dentistry. Sure. Thank you. So I moved back home to Westchester County. And uh, there really is something about that feeling of I'm home. And it, it was very nice to be back uh, in Westchester and north of White Plains where it gets to be very country-like. And I found a building uh, to build a dental practice. And I started from scratch. Uh, and it, it was a bank, Bank of America, which is quite funny. Uh, they also, I went to them, uh, not at that bank, but Bank of America to their professional lending program and borrowed money to build out my practice, which was in an abandoned Bank of America space. And they had a huge old safe that was absolutely gigantic. And that cost about 45,000 to have that removed from my space. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. It's too bad you couldn't have kept money in that safe. <laughs> I looked to see if there was anything in there, believe me, and there was nothing. <laughs> now, rather take your time in answering this question. 
But from 1994 until now, I know that there have been several advances as far as technology in the dentistry field uh, has emerged. Tell us about some of those that have made it easier, certainly for you and certainly for patients. Uh, that, that's a great question. Uh, I think one of the most exciting things that happened, which is what really got me so excited about dentistry, uh, as I mentioned, it, it was kind of a letdown. But in 2000, I found, thanks to the advances, cosmetic dentistry. And what that entailed was being able to change people's lives by giving them beautiful smiles because of the advances in adhesive dentistry, porcelain, and having these created crowns, veneers that really look so natural. And we were able to do things that we couldn't do ever do. So I went through a whole series of uh, advanced training out in Las Vegas, and then really started my focus on cosmetic dentistry, which has been my passion and been my career uh, ever since then. So that's a little bit of the background, but when I graduated in 1991 from Boston University, nothing really changed. The uh, adhesive dentistry was in its total infancy and the materials they had were very inferior. They would shrink a lot and had a, maybe they would last a year or so in your mouth. So they might've been natural looking, but they did not hold up well at all. And that would cause a lot of complications for patients and for the dentists. So that got a lot better. The materials just have become superior. And I called it, I was trained with Civil War dentistry techniques. And that nothing really changed until the late 1990s. And that's when everything just exploded and continues to explode. Uh, we have um, digital technology now with digital radiographs, implants, uh, CAT scans in our offices. Things are just, it's night and day. We have the ability to do bone grafting that works, uh, a liquid that stops decay in its place, just silver diamine fluoride, put a couple of drops and the decay ends. We don't have to drill and fill in many cases. These are like dreams of what a dentist would think of. And it's all has happened in the past couple of decades. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I can remember going to dentists and when they would prepare the fillings for the tooth, you'd hear this machine that sounded like an airplane getting ready to take off from the runway. And you don't yeah. have that anymore. 
No, they were called wiggle bugs, wiggle bugs, and they would um, mix the alloy uh, of the silver fillings. And and I haven't placed a silver filling uh, since 1998. Wow, that's that's amazing. Now, um, tell me about OSHA. About OSHA. Uh huh. Well, OSHA is a, um, a government agency that oversees uh, the workplace safety, and they uh, there's a lot of uh, regulations, and we have um, a service which is really great because it's so difficult to keep up with everything, kind of how you have a tax attorney to help you with your taxes. They have some services which, which will help your practice keep up with the regulations. And they will, uh, the service comes in once a year and kind of goes through your office and just make sure that you have everything you need to in order. Okay, now tell me about what you have done to make, I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm never afraid to go to a dentist. A doctor, that's another story. <laughs> but what have you done in your office to make patients feel more comfortable and more at ease? Oh, well, thank you. Um, there's a lot of things. First off, I feel that uh, smell is the, the five senses are very important and they really can trigger bad memories, trauma. Things will just bring, uh, if you smell something or hear something, it will bring it back in your mind so much. So I've always had an electric drill, which still does sound like a drill but it's, it is better decibel-wise than air-driven drills. Uh, I've always invested in that. I had that when they first came out uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, so we try to do that. I don't have music in my office for a variety of reasons that, one, it seems that the staff always kind of fights about, you know, preferences and what they like and don't like. And I also don't want to trigger anything with a patient or play anything that's offensive or overstimulate their senses. Uh, so I don't have music. Uh, the other thing is all the lights that I have are on dimmers. So I keep it, uh, kind of so you don't feel like the lights are blaring down at you and that can that can make people feel anxious so i always have the lights dimmed and it keeps people's blood pressure lower keeps them feeling less uh agitated and with the smell i use all modern material and i think you can absolutely attest to the fact that 
my office never smelled like a dental office. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that. And that's because I don't use the old uh, materials that really have that dental office smell. You know, it's funny when, when you talk about music and stuff, my dad uh, worked for Ritter Dental Company in Rochester, New York, which is obviously gone by now. But they used to have something called Audiac, where they would play music and give earphones to the patients and figured that because they were listening to Pat Boone or Elvis Presley or whatever, they wouldn't feel any pain when they were when they were being worked on. But I don't think it was too successful. No. And, you know, now one with regard to infection control and COVID, uh, we've gotten away for a while with uh, everything is kind of single use. So we, we definitely don't do that anymore. And for a while, for many reasons. But now with the incredible talk about technology, earbuds, uh, patients have m much more expensive ways to listen to music if they want to while they're in the dental chair. And I find that that's better than offering them a menu of what would you like to listen to? They do, do, you have, do you have patients that really do that? Oh, yeah, many. I mean, I, I don't, but. I have no problem, especially with the wireless earbuds. They will listen to an audiobook, a podcast, music, and they're happy. So if they want to do it, now people can do that because of technology. We don't have to supply it. How difficult is it to work with, with children who go to the dentist maybe for the first time when they're eight, nine years old uh, and, and need something done? How do you work with that? Well, it's been recommended for decades that the first uh, dental visit should be before the age of one. Well, yes. But you don't have any teeth. Uh, exactly. That's why, because we want to educate the parents uh, and tell them very important things, such as when the children get their teeth which they already do have some teeth at the age of one, that we don't want them to be drinking uh, juices, that we don't want them to go to bed with their bottle because they'll have uh, bottle rot teeth uh, and that parents need to begin to brush the teeth, either wipe it with a cloth and then introduce juice, a toothbrush. So, we want to educate the parents and then we want to keep the visits very simple, such as sitting on the mom's lap and riding up and down in the chair. And we do a technique of do of show, tell, do. So you show them or let them touch uh, one of the instruments and you tell them what you're going to do with it. And then you do it very quickly and let them process that. So if the child is, does not have a behavioral problem and if the parents are reading them a book about 
my first visit to the dentist and they've been going since they were one, usually it makes it easier. But if a child ends up uh, at the age of four in your chair, that makes it more difficult because they have fear and maybe cavities. Hmm. Boy, I don't even remember now how old I was when I went to the dentist, but you started one years old. The tooth fairy isn't even in business yet. That's right. <laughs> well, they, you enroll at that point so she knows where you live. <laughs> okay. But there's pediatric dentists, and that was the other good thing about practicing uh, in a big city like Boston or even where I am about 20, 20 miles south of my office, there's a pediatric dental office. And just like you bring your children to the pediatrician, I'm a firm believer in pediatric dentistry, especially for the little ones. And the offices that they have today for uh, children are just incredible. They're usually theme-based and can be the whole office can be a huge aquarium or whatever theme the pedodontist picks. And it's extremely kid-friendly, not scary, and a fun experience. And that's what they've been doing for quite some time now with pediatric dentistry. And now a lot of dentists advertise. There's a lot of ads now on television and, and I think on radio that you didn't have before. Have you ever thought of, of doing anything like that or just still word of mouth? I, I've always been a big proponent of uh, both forms of advertising. Word of mouth is extremely important and is probably the most solid referral that will come into your office. And then um, using other sources, other campaigns to reach the public. Uh, TV ads, especially in big cities, are a little prohibitive for a lot of uh, dentists to do because of the cost. Uh, but now with social media and, the, and all of those other avenues, that's a very good way of advertising also. And you can do pay-per-click campaigns, uh, many different things. Um, are you pleased with dental insurance or could it be improved and take care of things like <clears throat> implants, for instance? I think that dental insurance has always been awful and is totally not like medical insurance in any way. And I'm finally seeing people having some increase in their annual maximum benefits, which was around anywhere from $1,500 to 2000 a year. That was the same amount that they were giving their subscribers in 1966. So, in 1966, $1,500 bought you a lot of dentistry. In 
2015, $1,500 really does not get you a lot of dentistry. I see some uh, companies offering up to three or $5,000 a year. That's very rare to have a, a annual maximum of 5,000. It's still around $2,000 for an average plan. I feel that there's so many exclusions that it basically really covers preventative treatment and it doesn't cover a lot of the procedures that are necessary, such as bone grafting when you're getting an implant. So they just seem to finally begin to cover implants, but only partially. And the problem is everything is so expensive in dentistry. And if you want quality care with quality products that you can't really practice that way and accept insurance to do quality work because you cannot really make a profit. So it's, it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. And I don't think that's going to get better anytime soon. We, we talked about working with children. What about elderly people? Do you have problems with, with working with them? Are they sometimes afraid of a dentist? No, they, I think a lot of the elderly people have lived a very long life and they're amazed at the uh, advances and they're a little more mellow about things in life. So I really enjoy working with elderly people. They're very enjoyable. So I see much less fear and uh, apprehension or resistance to coming to the dentist. They usually like coming. With all the technology, is, is fear less of a problem now with patients than it used to be? It is. It's, it definitely is less. I think it now it, it kind of depends on some past experience, but also uh, what mental space people are in. If people are anxious on the whole, that usually they'll be more anxious in a dental setting. They can be very anxious because it is anxiety provoking. You're having a lot of fear of the unknown, fear of maybe pain, and a lot of stimuli coming right to your face. So I understand that. I have a lot of empathy for fear for, from people. Now, you, on, on YouTube, you talk about painless uh, injections. Tell us about that. Yes, I really feel that people do not like needles. They do not. That is a real fear of people. And even people that have body piercings or tattoos, they say, well, that's different. This is in my mouth and I don't like it. So uh, it's a real phenomenon. And 
what I do is I always give some topical gel to anesthetize the first three to five layers of cells. So that means that the initial prick of the needle will be dampened by that local gel that's put on. And then I have a uh, machine that very slowly, as opposed to my thumb, drips at a steady rate, a slow, steady rate, the local anesthetic into the place where I want inside the mouth. And that cuts down on the discomfort by not having the tissue swell. And that's usually what uh, makes it uncomfortable is not only the initial prick from the needle, but if you go too fast and deliver the bolus of fluid, it really does kind of tear the tissue before the body's able to get numb. And that's why it can hurt. That's one thing I do. And it also doesn't look scary. It's not the big shiny syringe that is extra long. And you think the whole needle is about a foot long and it really isn't, but the way it looks, it's, it's very off-putting. With the machine I have, it's like holding a pen and it's very deceiving because it's not shiny. People don't know that it's even a needle. So it's all of those little things that really help. Uh, one other thing I do is I know that the closer you are to the nose and the front of the mouth, the more sensitive you are. So even if you're working on a front tooth, I never inject as we were taught to inject right above the tooth. I'll go a little bit more toward the back of the mouth, get that numb, and then very slowly turn the needle and uh, begin to deposit some of the fluid, the local anesthetic closer to the tooth in the front that I'm gonna be working on. And it, it's a lot easier to tolerate than to have a needle directly put in the front of your mouth. I've had that done. I have a filling in, in my front tooth and it really is uncomfortable to get that uh, right yeah. under your nose. It hurts. Um, do you do any training now with, with young people getting ready to become dentists? I've been so fortunate. And this is another thing that I just feel that it's working so well at this point in my career where I have mentored uh, two young women who uh, are now either in their third year at Boston University Dental School and another woman who is about to begin this July at Boston University Dental School. And it has been so fun seeing their journey. Uh, the first young lady that I met was a freshman in college and she wanted to be a dentist. And a lot of people want to be dentists. And she really stuck it through. She really wanted it. And her dream is coming true. 
So it was really very rewarding to see the whole process, to be so happy that I don't have to go through it and how difficult it is now. I know that it's estimated that next year, Boston University is going to have 7,000 applicants for about 110 spots. That's unbelievable. Uh, the chances of getting in are, are just so difficult uh, at this point. It was very different than the 80s. Is, is dentistry more of a woman's field? I mean, uh... I don't know too many male dentists or male hygienists. Do people feel more comfortable with women? Uh, up until the 80s, it was all male dominated. And uh, in the early 80s, most of the class, about probably 90% of the class was all men. And by the time I got there in 1988 in the country, that the class size consisted of about 45% were women. And now uh, it's probably 55% women in, that make up the class. But when you go out into the real world and away from an academic setting, uh, it's still very much a male dominated profession the practice owners or the big decision makers or the leaders in dentistry, I would say tend to be at least 85 to 90% male still. Hmm. Is that discouraging to you? Yes, it's very discouraging. It, it honestly is. I think about it a lot. I talk about it a lot. Uh, it, it really is. It's still very much that way. And it, to be honest, it's a little, it's a little disappointing. Uh, I say at times that it, it's not, at least for me and a lot of dentists, it's not a hobby. It's, it's a passion. It's a full-time job. And it also is something that you can do three days a week and have a family. So it does work very well for females, but when you're doing it that way, you're not going to be a leader in the profession or one of the big decision makers uh, because you're only doing it part-time. Now, when you have spoken at dental conventions, as I know that you have, how do you encourage people to get into dentistry? I mean, like I always knew I wanted to get into radio. From the time I was eight years old, I was fascinated with a microphone. What do you what do you tell some of these youngsters that come to hear you? Well, there when I speak at dental conventions, there are already dentists. And what I try to show them always is that you really need to to take very good courses and it's constant. Uh, lifelong learning. Like I said, when I got out, it was Civil War dentistry. I don't do anything that I was pretty much taught to use or do anymore because 
the materials didn't even exist back in 1991. So I, am sure that it will continue. There's a little bit of lull of new materials, but the technology aspects are incredible right now and just growing exponentially. So I'm sure there's gonna be, it's just gonna continue over the next 10, 20, 30 years in every way. So you have to be dedicated and a lifelong learner. And with this, it's also that it's a calling to be a dentist. It's not like you, it's really something inside of you that makes you want to do it. And I think that it, it's a long, hard road. So even though there's much more interest in dentistry, it's a hard road and not everyone gets that opportunity to go to dental school. But I'll bet it's, it's easier now, again, with the technology for, for people to become a dentist. They don't have to work as hard? I think you work, it's not as frustrating. I think you have to work very hard. And I think that there's, it was definitely a much more simple practice where you could have uh, a smaller staff. Uh, now everything is so technology dependent that there's service contracts, there's equipment that needs to be either inspected or updated or so many things that it's very hard to own and operate a dental practice now, but it, it's made it easier in many ways to do procedures, but it's still not easy. In some ways it was almost, it was a simpler life with dentistry way back, but I wouldn't trade it for what we have now, no way. Now, uh, something maybe I should have discussed with you earlier. You were on Chronicle. You were on Channel 5 once. Yes, I was. <coughs> um, what, what did you do? Did you give somebody a free dental job? Is that how I get Well, I believe, let's see, I was on, fortunately, I was on a couple of spots that they did. I think. I did one once about an oral appliance that you would put in that would slow down your eating. And then you would realize that you were satiated and eat less. So that was one. And then uh, what, what, was the, what was the other one, Ken? I, I don't remember. All I know, all I remember is telling you how they were going to do it. Like they weren't going to do it at the studio and you weren't going to have somebody like uh, Mary Richardson uh, come and see you, that it would be one of the producers who would come and ask you the questions and then they would build a story around it. But what it was, I don't remember. My memory isn't as good as it used to be. Well, I, but, uh, I can join in with you with that comment. Yes. <laughs> but 
Um, I believe it might have been the uh, one with the oral appliance to help uh, you lose weight. And That's I, do, I yeah, it was very cool. You were right. That was really very a great production team. It was exciting. Yeah, well, it it still must be working because they're celebrating 40 years of Chronicle of the Air. And yeah. I don't think there's many magazine programs that can say that. Yeah, no, G not anymore. Giving a little plug to Chronicle. Uh, one of the other things on YouTube is something I never really thought about, uh, and that's mouth cancer. And you discussed that for a couple of minutes on YouTube as well. Yes, uh, it's always extremely important uh, that it's the only time you go to, you will really have a good thorough checkup for oral cancer is when you go to the dentist for a cleaning or a checkup. And oral cancer is a, still a very awful cancer to get. It can be very disfiguring, life-changing, uh, and the fatality rate, if, if it isn't caught early, is high still. Uh, there's several types of oral cancer, and one of the types that Michael Douglas kind of brought into the light was the uh, oral cancer, oral pharyngeal cancer that you get from the human papillomavirus. Now, luckily that can be treated fairly easily compared to other cancers, but who wants radiation to the throat? You just don't want that, it's not good. So it's a, it's a difficult course, but it usually does not involve surgery, uh, which is also why I'm a big proponent of vaccinating kids for HPV, because we need to prevent this uh, sexually transmitted disease, which really causes, can cause oral cancer and cervical cancer. So that's one. Uh, Squamous cell carcinoma is also uh, a very common cancer in the mouth, and that can be very devastating, where usually you have a big part of your jaw bone removed uh, and causes all sorts of problems with eating and speaking uh, afterwards. So having, if you feel that anything has changed or you have difficulty swallowing or something you think looks funny in your mouth, you, you have to get it checked out and you have to get it checked out right away. This is where time is of the essence. And usually by the time you're aware of it in your mouth, it, it's already kind of advanced. So you need to, to really not just say, not ignore it. That's the best advice. Just get it checked out, get it biopsied uh, and, and find out definitively what it is. Don't do a, well, let's see if it goes away for more than two weeks. If things will heal and go away uh, definitely within a week, two weeks. If it's not better by then or if it comes back, it needs to be examined by a professional.
Now, we have not discussed this before, but I also know from working with you, and you may not be able to talk about it because of HIPAA, but you've been lucky enough to work with some pretty famous celebrities. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I have. I've been very, very fortunate with regard to the social media advertising and my um, real passion for doing excellent superior cosmetics that I've been able to really uh, draw in celebrities and people in need of that type of work, either it being a repair of existing cosmetic work that they have or um, a desire to have the Hollywood smile. And one of the most exciting things is here in New York, and particularly where I am now in Pound Ridge, is that there are many, many Hollywood people who live in Pound Ridge and around the area. And slowly but surely, by word of mouth and advertising, um, I've been very fortunate to have some notable people in my practice. And it is very exciting for me because that was a goal. And it started in uh, Boston, but to me, the celebrities I had in my practice, other than you, who truly is a real life celebrity, <laughs> as we know, yeah, it's true. I had a lot of um, very brilliant physicians uh, and healthcare workers and predominantly physicians who were absolutely um, some of just the luminaries in their fields. And to me, that was an honor to treat them. Uh, but to me, they were celebrities. But with regard to cosmetics, you can't, uh, you need to kind of, when you're a real true cosmetic dentist, you need some big names to really make you feel like a cosmetic dentist. And, and that's just continues to happen here in New York. And it is very, very exciting. And yes, with HIPAA, I really can't say much, but I can just say that there are times when I stand in my office and I, I just can't believe it. It's like, it's a dream come true. Yeah. I mean, I, I you've had celebrities in sports that I would have loved to have met. <laughs> um, I don't know whether we can mention any names or not, even though they probably won't be listening to this program, but uh, one of them was a great hockey analyst uh, with NBC. Yeah. Uh, and another one was a, uh, both a both a pitcher and a manager with the the Boston Red Sox, and I'll just let it go at that. Yes, yes, that was very nice, uh, very exciting, also for me. Um, and that's just a little sample, and then we get into you know real known people on TV and the movies. I'm I'm I just mentioned one name. Yes. And that was Ben Ben Affleck. Yes, that was uh, in the newspaper. So that was uh, very fortunate in Boston. And that was uh, because he was shooting a movie there and had some issues. And he they his 
team, his people sought out a cosmetic dentist and that was me. Is HIPAA a handicap sometimes? I think it can be used uh, like anything, any law, any government law can be used um, in a very severe uh, draconian manner. And I always laugh. Uh, it's similar to uh, now we have, well, you know, you stand around with the mask on in a restaurant, but then when they seat you in the crowded room, you can take your mask off and eat for over an hour. <laughs> so I, I always have laughed with HIPAA where, uh, you know, you're not even supposed to say the people's name, but yet they open the door and scream out in the waiting room your name and you know my name the first name is very unique Helene the last name Smith is uh, very anonymous but they will scream out my whole name and uh, you know who's ever sitting there certainly knows you're in the waiting room so I think they kind of break HIPAA all the time uh, if you really wanted to analyze the law. So I think being a, you know, a, a family dentist that lots of times uh, you have to know not to say like, oh, your sister was in here and she had cosmetic work done because that breaks HIPAA. But if you have a spouse or somebody is kind of beginning to have some issues health-wise that, you know, you, you do end up talking about it with their loved one, uh, which helps me uh, provide better care. But, you know, sometimes that is technically maybe breaking HIPAA. Mm -hmm. Well, um, do you, now your website is uh, poundridgecosmeticdentistry.com. Okay, sounds easy enough. Listen, I want to thank you for sitting down uh, and, and talking and revealing some of your inner thoughts that I've never asked you before <laughs> and uh, enjoyed every bit of it. And I hope that I'll be uh, seeing you soon. Oh, thank you, Ken. Thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.